everything was going so well. Right, that's a, uh, a phrase you typically hear at the all-too-conclusive end of a good run. Your parade's been rained on, right? your party's been crashed, your milk has been spilled and cried over. It's been uttered at the back end of an otherwise fabulous wedding weekend. Right? Everything was going so well, you may have said. We got discount on the tuxes. Our family got along well. Uncle Lou didn't get drunk. <laughs> My fiance, he even reserved a white castle for the big day. Then I realized this was the white castle he reserved. A wonderful hamburger joint. Actually, it's probably average to below average. And great for a reception, of course, and the food. But uh, what about family vacations? You know, everything was going so well. Right? The rental was better than we expected. We met a local who showed us all the best spots to fish. He didn't let us use, even let us use his boat with one of these inflatable rafts hooked on back until mom fell off the raft, planted her head into the shallow end of Lake Winnipesaukee. And who can forget then trying to take a family picture next to the Grand Canyon? So well, watch that, watch that step, Jake. Now, but these, these, are, these are, again, temporary things that can go poorly when everything was going so well. Weddings can be later laughed about. A day at the spa can soothe a head and neck injury. And, of course, teenagers can be replaced. But uh, <laughs> there is potential for more permanent scarring when you hear everything was going so well about your marriage about long-term relationships, about your family, your job, your church, your community group, your God-assigned mission to live as one body together to be salt and light to the world around us. The only context in which we've seen Joshua and Generation Next operate is in this everything is going so well sphere. And this God-assigned mission to be salt and light in a new land to a new people, it happens during a time of great blessing. Things are just clicking, right? God begins this by coaching up Joshua, encouraging him every little step of the way. And he delivers them into this new land by parting a major body of water. He helps them forever remember and be thankful for his working in their life, for his grace, by giving them these stones to remember it by. He gives them confidence. They have a leader who's worth following. He grows them through both inconvenient but then joyful obedience as he continues just to do more miracles, more amazing things and provisions. They even manage to pick up along the way their first non-Jew to bring along in the family caravan. Great blessing. Everything was going so well. And then we get to Joshua chapter 7. Read with me if you would. Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 2. Joshua. Now remember, here's the context. A major city has just fallen. I mean, the walls around the city have crumbled just by God's people marching around it seven times. So a major miracle, more blessing. God gives the city into his people's hands. Joshua then sent men from Jericho, that city, 
to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, hey, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up. But let about two or 3,000 men, that was not many for them, but you know, maybe about a little less than 10% of the people. Don't let all the people go out, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. That should be enough. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of I. The men of I killed 36 of Israel's men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and they became as water. And Joshua, he tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? But to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O oh Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They'll surround us. They'll cut us off. Cut off the name of us from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So he doesn't use his exact phrasing, obviously. But can't you hear what's behind Joshua's complaint? Everything was going so well. Lord, I don't understand. Why? What went wrong here? So we're going to ask that question this morning and examine our own circumstances alongside Joshua's generations, generation next when God deals us a change-up. In an otherwise charmed life, and otherwise smooth sailing. So we're going to look at what went wrong, figuring out what went wrong, and then thirdly, how to make it right. All right, so first, what went wrong, figuring out what went wrong, and then how to make it right. So very simply this morning, first, what went wrong? Whether it's lying awake in bed, whispering this to God, or speaking to a trusted friend, uh, maybe a, a family member, even a pastor, this sort of diagnostic question usually can't be avoided. It's bound to be asked. We will come up with all kinds of answers, though, to this question, what went wrong. Maybe it's God. It's the devil. It's just dumb luck. Maybe it's just my cross to bear. It's a mystery. No one will ever know. But here in Joshua, we see the most likely reason for what goes wrong. Sin in your own backyard. Rebellion in deed or attitude against God. The God of the universe. And this can be manifested in a couple of ways. So 1A, sin in your own life. You mean God, God the Father, God of the Bible personally intervenes in my life when I rebel to dole out the adult equivalent of spankings and timeouts? Yes, he does. We are his children if you have trusted Jesus. 
And so it's partly as an encouragement, but partly to explain why life sometimes is the way it is, that the author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5, going through verse 10, and you have forgotten, or have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And my son, do not regard the lightly the discipline of God, nor be wary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises, an old way of saying punishment, punishes, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there, or daughter is there for that matter, whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So it's a good thing that God wants to intervene in our lives and give us the adult equivalent of timeouts and spankings. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. So God has this great plan for us to become more like him. But he's got to get our attention. And he uses discipline to do that, to intervene into our lives. When your marriage, relationships, job, church, life, mission, unravels before your eyes like the last five squares on a one-ply roll of toilet paper, it is not always because God is disciplining you for your sin, but it might be. And it often is. So we should ask that question, God, are you, are you trying to tell me something here? Because many of us are so quick to brush away, right, from our person any feeling of guilt. And certainly our friends aren't going to tell us that. Our friends are going to say, hey, maybe things are going poorly because of your sin. <laughs> you just don't hear that very often. So we might want to think it. We might want to consider it. might be the first place we should look. But not just sin in our own life but sin in another's life might be what's wrong in this situation. Look with me. Just turn back slightly here to Joshua 6, starting in verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. All right, this is around the city of Jericho. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute, all who live with her, and her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. All the silver... All the gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. Don't take them. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. God's people take the city. Set aside these things. Jericho, you see, was the first city of the promised land given to God's people. And as such, God in turn asked them to respond by giving back to them what's known as the first fruits the first fruits of what he has given to them. This principle is, goes throughout Scripture and it continues today. It's the idea that God has given us his best and certainly has through Jesus Christ, his best and his first and his only son. And we're called to respond then with our best and our first. 
You can tell this principle is at work here because the next city, I, which is being dealt with here and in chapter 8, God says of the city, I, loot it, plunder it, take what you want from it because I, A-I, is second. Only Jericho is the first fruits of the land. And so give back to me of it just as I have given it to you. Do you see that? So they're called to give the loot back to God, but we're let in on a little secret in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Read that with me. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. All that silver, all that gold, all that treasure, all the fineries. They broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, I want to read this again carefully and see if it doesn't kind of bother you. It should a little bit. Achan, son of this, you know, Carmi, etc., took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Blame and consequences immediately spill out onto the whole people of God. And the consequences for an individual sin continue to spill out upon the whole people of God. That's not just an Old Testament thing. The consequences for sin continue to spill out on the whole people of God for an individual's. Now, we see this in regular life, in everyday relationships, in marriage and friendships, when you hurt someone. And in a church setting, in the whole people of God, it's most obvious when a leader falls, when a leader sins grossly, right? In some clear and obvious manner, and it hurts people, and it breaks trust, and it destroys churches, causes them to split, and various things of that nature. But is it true of the person here who is hiding porn on his laptop? Is it true here of the person who gossips or participates in sort of sliding people on the side with their non-Christian group of friends? Is it true of the person who is leading kind of a double life, but here they're a pretty good Christian? Is it true of the person who knows they're holding on, they're clinging to an idol or to an addiction, but no one else knows about it? Is it true of the person who steals company time with laziness or leisure? Or the person who harbors unexpressed bitterness towards someone else here in this room. They haven't shown it. Is it true in those circumstances that the sin of the individual affects the whole? It seems like such private deeds, attitudes, or disposition may may hurt the person, but but not the whole church, right? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 26 and 27. Fascinating. If one member suffers... All suffer together. One member is honored. All rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually, here's that theme again, members of it. In other words, if one person is pained by their sin, if one person suffers through the sin, guess what? In some way, I, I don't completely understand this. I've got to confess this to you. It is a mystery. It is a spiritual mystery to me. But somehow there is a ripple effect that affects the entire people of God. It's also expressed by God, by God elsewhere here uh, through Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 through 7. Let me just read this passage and follow along here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for you 
and I mentioned this actually last week, is you become more like him. Sanctification. That you, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. What is he talking about? Mostly private kinds of sins, right? Sexual immorality, lust, things you can keep on the side, private from other people. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. You see what he's saying here? You can wrong someone who had nothing to do with your secret lust, your secret immorality, your private sin. Also, in doing so, you, you wrong your brother. You wrong your sister in Christ. So I want to encourage you, just expand your perceived area of influence or being influenced. Expand it beyond those in your immediate circle. It actually goes to the person who's sitting three aisles in front of you or six aisles behind you. Each of us has a great deal at stake in the secret holiness of another person's life. So one thing that went wrong was sin. Let me give you one more thing that went wrong here. No one knew Achan. This one's easy to miss, but why is it on the way back from this battle, the Battle of Jericho, did no one ask Achan, uh, hey, bro, what's in the sack? Right? I mean, you know, he's, he's carrying this stuff along, right? It's a lot of loot. He's even got a new garment of clothing, as we'll see here in a moment. And no one says, hey, man, uh, what's that? Well, you got some PB&J in there, like a picnic lunch? You bringing home a snow globe for the kids? What's going on? I mean, something. And it's not only his army mates, but his family. We'll see later, he actually, he actually digs holes in, around his tent to hide this stuff. And, no, and you know, his son doesn't say, hey, Dad, what's, what are you doing with the shovel? <laughs> right? Like, what, what's going on here? Why are you, what, what, are you, what are you getting underneath my sleeping bag for? Listen, so listen, what happens? Once Achan is found out, listen to what happens, starting in verse 19, going through verse 22 here. Joshua said to Achan, so he confronts Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Don't hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar. That's from the people of Babylon. It's essentially like coveting an Armani suit or whatever exercise outfit all those people that come out of Baywear. I saw him in the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gars of gold, weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them and see they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath that. Notice the key word here. It's repeated three times. Hide, hidden, hidden. It's the Hebrew word shaman. You get it three times here in these verses. As I've said before, when you're reading the Bible and you see a word or phrase repeated multiple times, it's usually because the author is trying to make a point. And that's certainly the case here, hiding, hidden, hidden. And here the point is this. Even those you call closest can miss what is hidden if you aren't known. What about you? Are you known and do you know others? Let me be a little more specific with that question. 
Is there anyone in your life who knows something's up with you just by a quick look or listen? You know what I mean by that? Someone who knows, hey man, what's going on? Just by something you would say, or something you don't say, or, or a way you look. We all should have those people in our lives. Likewise, is there anyone in whom you know something's up by giving them a quick look or listen? I'm not talking about someone who lives 100 miles, per, 100 miles away or more. All right, a phone call doesn't do you justice. We're all able to hide sin better than a phone call. And as I looked at my life this week, I thought about this, and I, I could count three persons in the church who know something is up with me just by a quick look or a listen. Persons who know me, and by saying, hey man, what's up? Give me an opportunity to come out of isolation, to, to step out of darkness. In his great little book on church community, a book called Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. And in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person and it can tear the fellowship asunder. Isn't that weird? Wait a minute, by isolating myself, I'm tearing away the fellowship. That's how it works. Okay, I've got to move on. So number one, what went wrong? Number two, figure out what went wrong. Figuring out what happened here. Now, I've got to actually breeze through this part, just for the sake of time, which I shouldn't do because there's so much here, but I'm going to have to. Now, it would have been easy for Joshua to figure, oh, man, I shouldn't have sent those spies. Sending the spies was untrusting, and only sending 3,000 soldiers, that was very prideful. But that's not where Joshua went wrong, and God tells him as much. So, number one, when you're figuring out what went wrong when things go poorly, pray honestly, but with ears still open. Read with me, if you would, starting in verse 6. We'll read verses 6 through uh, 11 here. Then Joshua tore his clothes. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So, first of all, his prayer is humble. He rightly humbles himself. He goes before God saying, God, I'm just a man. I'm finite. I don't know. I don't know what went wrong. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to get other people to pray with me as well. So he's praying the right way. I mean, he's, he's, he's approaching God the right way. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Whether we've been content to dwell beyond the Jordan, O Lord, what can I say when the Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? So he brings his complaint to God. Unlike the Israelites who have a history of complaining to one another, he rightly brings his complaint to God vertically. And very honestly. And then finally he says, For the Canaanites, all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They'll surround us. They'll cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So he also prays that God's name would be glorified through this. God, my concern is your glory. Please be glorified. Do you see it here? He's honest. He's humble. He wants God to be glorified. A genuine, heartfelt prayer, but a typical prayer. 
I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's a typical prayer. God's response is anything but that. It's one of the great responses in the Bible. The Lord says to Joshua, get up. (laughs) Get up, man. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. You're way off on this. They have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. In other words, they took it for themselves. It's a great lesson here. Even while you are talking honestly and earnestly with God, humbling yourself before him, asking for him to be glorified, he may wish to change course. And so you something you just didn't expect. And of course, with that comes the question, well, how do I know that's God talking? And that's a huge question. And we can't go deal with that completely this morning. But one little key is actually found here in verse 12. Look at that with me. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, God says. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have uh, devoted for destruction. And I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Second thing here in trying to figure out what went wrong, get familiar. If you're not, get familiar with God's character and purposes. As Joshua listens to God interrupt him, Joshua doesn't need a lesson on the importance of God's holiness and his presence. He knows God wants his people to be more like him. And he also knows the importance of God being with his people. He experiences it. He learns the importance of it from his mentor, Moses, who Joshua observes, say to God, God's, God's going to say to Moses, hey, go ahead and go in the promised land. You're going to have great abundance. I'm going to stay behind. And, and Moses says, uh-uh, I don't want all that good stuff if you're not going to come with us. Joshua watches Moses say, You can give me every blessing in the world. God, if you don't come with us, our lives will be in the tank. All God has to say is, I will be with you no more. And he's got Joshua's attention. Joshua knows this is God speaking. Paul Miller in his great book on prayer called Praying Life makes a great point. The voices of God, the flesh, the devil, the world, all come in on the same channel. Right? So you don't have this like God part of your person, this Satan part of your person, this, this world part of your person, this flesh part. It, it all comes in on the same channel. And the challenge then is to so saturate that channel and saturate our minds with what God says about himself and his purposes that it gradually drowns out all other voices. Right? That you're hearing about God's character, that you're reading about God's character and his purpose is so much that it's so easy to distinguish between what is God and what is everything else. So much to say on that, but I'm going to have to move on. <laughs> so, figuring out what went wrong. Last point, number three, how to make it all right. How to make it right. There are a couple things we can learn here from Joshua 7. Number one, enlarge your prayers to include the entire church the entire body of Christ. If your perceived area of influence and being influenced is larger than you dare believe, if people are influencing you simply because they know Jesus and hiding private sin, and vice versa, our prayers must be enlarged also. Our prayers must expand also. You have a, a stake in each person's purity in each person's daily choice to live for self or to live for Jesus. Because that choice might have a ripple effect in your life. 
It seems like from God's word that it does. That's huge. So I, I, I say this not to be promotional, not to be a used car salesman kind of guy, but there's no more practical response to this point on making things right than participating in the November 17th prayer vigil. 12 hours to make the sun stand still. To see God do big things in people's lives. Because one reason is that each person in the church will have an opportunity to submit prayer requests. You can actually do that online right now. You can go online and submit a prayer request. Beautiful thing. And the next two Sundays we'll even have cards available for each person that you could submit by hand if you don't know how to get on the interwebs. And if you sign up to pray, you will be able to intercede for God's people, even people you don't know, because we're going to have a list of prayer requests. And you have a chance to pray for them, intercede for people you don't know. Even an Achan, whom you can bring before the throne of God, who alone can restore lives that are otherwise set to bring ruin and chaos. It's a serious song. Sign up. Begin to enlarge your prayers, not just for other people's sake, but for yours. Because their private sin may have a ripple effect in your life, as will their private holiness. Number the second thing we see here in Joshua about how to make it right is the importance of carrying out the plan that God speaks to you. So as you're trying to figure out, God, what is wrong here? And God says, this is what's wrong. And here's how you've got to take care of it. And by the way, we have a solid default plan here in Joshua. All right, you could do much worse than following the plan that God gives Joshua. This plan gets people near one another, and it gets rid of sin. Let me talk about both. First, God's plan gets people near one another. Look with me in verses 13 through 18. You notice how we're going to end up reading the whole chapter this way. Get up. There's this repeat to Joshua here. Get up, consecrate the people, and say to them, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So in the morning, therefore, Joshua, you shall... Uh, be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord shall take shall come near by households. You see, he's going into smaller and smaller units. And the household the Lord takes shall be brought near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. And he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua carries out this plan. He rose early in the morning. He brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. Then he brings out the clans of Judah. And the clan of the Zerites was taken. And he brought out the clan of the family of the Zerites, man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, sorry, yeah, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Stop there. Again, back to Bible study 101. When you're reading the Bible, you see a phrase or an uncommon word repeated, pay attention, because the author is trying to make a point with this. Here, the phrase brought near or come near, it's uh, the same Hebrew word, karav. It's just translated a little bit different based on context, brought near, come near, karav. 
It's repeated seven times in the span of just five verses, right? Verse 14, three times. Verse 16, verse 17, two times. Verse 18. Bring him near. Bring him near. Come near. Bring near. As each tribe and then clan and then family and then man is summoned, each is brought near to the Lord and to one another. They're, they're brought together on this big plane. They're all intermingling. And what do you think they're talking about? Just imagine for a moment, all these people brought together. What do you think they're talking about? I think it's pretty obvious, right? Who, who is it? Who is it that's brought sin upon our community? With such an urgency to this disastrous situation, I absolutely think that each man was probably defending himself out loud. He was probably going through his laundry list. You know, here's potential skeletons in my closet. You think of that? Is it this? I mean, I mean, was it, I mean that was... I did that five years ago. I wasn't married. <laughs> you know, they go through their list. You can imagine this happening. All these people are brought out. Who, who did it? What was done? Which is actually quite brilliant. Because even as the Lord is singling out Achan, he is bringing near a community of men to air out private sin. They're talking about it. They're getting together. So as part of God's brilliancy of God's plan, he's got to single out Achan, but he's also bringing together a community to talk about sin. Most everyone in this room is indulging in some private sin. Can I just say that? I mean, there's good news at the end of this, but most everyone in this room is indulging in some kind of private sin that you have before now considered minor. You know, you may call it a fault of yours. Maybe it's you know it is your little secret indulgence, your little vice that everyone has, but in reality, it is what God says here in his word, an outrageous thing in Israel. It's an outrageous thing. If that secret relationship, that secret bottle, that secret addiction, that secret self-righteousness, that secret indulgence hasn't already caused ruin and chaos at will, friends. Such secrecy might not seem bad, but think about it. It begins usually with you avoiding certain relationships, right? Because you don't, you don't want to talk about those things. You, you don't want to get into it, or, or, or you know that person knows you. So you avoid certain relationships. And what does that cause? It causes hurt. It causes misunderstanding between people. It causes doubt. And you also avoid certain topics in conversation, right? You'll relate enough but you know if you get on certain topics, oh man, you're just going to feel awful afterwards. Or maybe even that person will find out. They might even stumble upon this secret in your life. What does that cause though when you avoid certain topics in a friendship, in a relationship? It causes distance, right? It causes restraint. God has given us a way to disarm this ticking time bomb in our life. Confessing it to someone else. In the book of James, James 5, 16, it says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. There's something about confessing that private rebellion, that private indulgence that disarms it. Someone else finally knows. But let me also say that's just a first step. It's a huge step. I don't want you not to hear that. It is a huge step to confess that to someone, but it is just a first step. 
Vulnerability disarms, but it doesn't remove the power of sin. It doesn't kill the sin. And it's important to consider, especially those looking for, who have already found that one gal pal with whom you can be vulnerable. You know that person, you know, you, I could tell that person anything. But that's just a first step, friends. God's plan also gets rid of sin. Look with me in verses 22 through 26. Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. So what do they do? They carry out God's plan. They spoke to Joshua. So they took him out of the tent, and they brought him to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and, don- and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all of Israel stoned Achan with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over Achan a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. He turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor, which basically means trouble. God's plan to get rid of sin. God's plan here is the punishment and sacrifice of one turns away God's wrath toward many. And it's a somber occasion here in the Valley of Accor. But you may not know that some 1,000 years later, the Lord would tell his people through the prophet Hosea that the Valley of Accor, that occasion of tragedy and, and sadness, would someday be a door of hope. Hosea 2.15. Someday, the Valley of Accor would become a door of hope when God would redeem his people forever from their bondage to sin. So one day, God would use an occasion when the punishment and sacrifice of one turns away God's wrath for many, opening a door, opening a way of hope. Through his death, On a Roman cross, Jesus Christ, the one, was punished so that he might turn away God's wrath for many who were no different than Achan, wanting more, though blessed, secretly indulgent. So friends, when when someone takes a moment to open themselves up, to take that step of courage and confess what is really horrid, wretched sin before God to you, Remind them, remind them, remind them that God forgives sin through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Do not let someone walk away from vulnerability without looking them in the eye and saying, you are forgiven through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you. 